This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. It's State of Ukraine from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep with NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. People felt and heard explosions in Kiev overnight. They're described as some of the most powerful since Russian forces backed away from Ukraine's capital. So why would Russia strike Kiev again now? Ukraine has not confirmed what the Russians hit, but Russia's Ministry of Defense made a statement. And that statement gets at the nature of war generally, and this war in particular. Truth is a frequent casualty. Russia says it struck a Ukrainian defense plant that makes missiles, including anti-ship missiles. The timing of this sudden strike makes it seem like retaliation for Ukraine's missile attack on a Russian warship. Pretty plain, except that Russia does not acknowledge a Ukrainian missile hit their ship. Russia says a fire on board reached ammunition and caused an explosion on that guided missile cruiser. So it would appear that Russia retaliated for a Ukrainian missile strike that Russia says never happened. It's a fitting way to start this podcast episode, which focuses on Russia's role in the information war. First, we hear from Russia's president, who is answering Western sanctions by saying that they failed. In numerous speeches, Vladimir Putin made the case that Russia has overcome the disruptions. What's Putin's case? NPR's Charles Maines is in Moscow. Hey there, Charles. Hi there. What do the sanctions feel like where you are? You know, it's been quite a ride. Uh, When sanctions kicked in, the currency, the ruble cratered. uh, That sent people scrambling for dollars and euros. Uh, Then we saw a run on goods, mainly out of fear of inflation or that items might disappear. You know, Mm -hmm. some of them you might expect, like iPhones. uh, Others were more surprising, like sugar. Uh, But these days, most items are back on the shelves. Only prices are way up. Uh, And of course, there's also been this exodus of foreign companies from Russia. So that's meant a lot of shuttered storefronts. Um, but all that said, the ruble, it's, it's back, you know, almost to where it was before the conflict began. And now that's thanks to government efforts to prop it up artificially and, of course, money pouring in from Russian energy exports, which are huge. But all this has created this kind of weird sense of normalcy here, although I really hesitate to use that word given the conflict. Has Putin played up that sense that there's nothing to see here? Yeah, you know, in this week in multiple settings, he was defiant and made the case that what he called the blitzkrieg of sanctions had failed. You know, Putin's basic message was they present Russia with opportunities uh, to become more self-reliant and to build new partnerships. Let's listen in. So Putin here is saying that economies always adapt, and if you can't find something in one country, well, you go to another, and it's unavoidable. And so Putin's idea is that what Russia can no longer get from the West, it can now get from China or India, and that what Russia currently sells to the West, you know, mainly gas and oil, it can provide to new friendlier markets if it comes to that. Well, can Russia pivot its whole economy to places like China and India then? Well, experts aren't as optimistic. They say these sanctions will be devastating and it's just too early to see. At least that's the view of Natalia Zubarevich. Uh, she's a specialist on Russia's regional development with Moscow State University. So Zubarevich calls these sanctions a genuine shock uh, to the Russian economy, but she says we'll only feel the real impact starting in May or June when she says production lines will break down. 
Now, she argues the reason for that is imported parts. Uh, Most of what's made in Russia comes from at least some component made in the West, often specialized and high-tech, which China can't provide, at least not right away. And so without these parts, work will just stop. Uh, She says in car factories, in offshore drilling for gas, in airplane manufacturing, and so on. And of course, all this impacts people's lives. Well, let's talk about the people. To the extent that you can tell, what are ordinary Russians thinking about sanctions? Well, we sort of know. Uh, Polls will tell you that a vast majority of Russians, over 80 percent, support Putin's policies in Ukraine, although most only have access to state media. That's important because that media presents the view that these sanctions are the West trying to keep Russia down. You know, in conversations I have, at least, I also hear another view. People say this will all be over soon. You know, give it a few months and everything will go back to normal. How realistic that is, is questionable, but it's a view the Kremlin can certainly live with, uh, at least for now. NPR's Charles Maines is in Moscow. Thanks. Thank you. Russia responded to its early failures in the war by appointing an overall commander for its offensive in Ukraine. General Alexander Dvornikov is known for leading Russia's brutal campaign in Syria's civil war, starting back in 2015. The information war is a big part of his style, and so are attacks on civilians. Elizabeth Surkoff knows something about him. She's at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Foreign Policy, and she spoke with our colleague Elsa Chang. And we should warn our listeners that this conversation we're about to have will contain graphic descriptions of war. Elizabeth, can you just tell us more about who Alexander Dvornikov is? Like what kind of experience he has as a military leader? So Russia does not uh, release information about the personality or special characteristics of the person, but we can judge him by his actions, I think. And Dvornikov saw the start of the Russian intervention in the war in Syria. And looking at his record during that time, he oversaw a campaign that combined a great deal of disinformation and lies presenting the fighting that is happening in Syria as one that is targeting terrorism and ISIS, even though it it did not target ISIS. Let me ask you about that, because he earned a reputation for being particularly ruthless when it came to civilians. Can you give us some detail about what strategies or weapons he employed in Syria, particularly in Aleppo? The Russians ended up uh, destroying Aleppo, uh, eastern Aleppo, to retake it from the from the rebels, and uh, this entailed uh, use of unguided bombs that hit indiscriminately, as well as cluster munition, as well as thermobaric weapons. Thermite is used to melt metal, so you can only imagine what happens to the human body when it is hit with thermite. And um, we are also seeing in Ukraine strikes on hospitals, on bakeries. These are all tactics that were used extensively under Dvornikov in Syria. But let me ask you, you know, the Ukrainian defense has been quite resilient so far. Uh, Ukraine's also getting many more weapons from both the U.S. and NATO. So does Dvornikov face greater obstacles in Ukraine than he did in Syria? The conflict in Syria is matched by its brutality to some extent with the Ukrainian one, unfortunately. But in other aspects, it is quite different. In Ukraine, the Russians are forced to fight a proper military that is well-supplied, well-organized, as opposed to disparate rebel groups that are 
not united, are poorly supplied, but when faced with a proper military, we're basically seeing really kind of embarrassing uh, defeats that uh, now, you know, apparently Dvornikov is supposed to prevent from recurring. Well, looking forward, based on Dvornikov's history as a military commander, what do you expect from his tenure leading all Russian forces in Ukraine at this point? I mean, the the, the conflict is likely to get bloodier or not because, um, you know, the Vornikov has been put in charge per se, but because the, the Russians are unable to achieve the uh, victory that they expected to, to achieve very quickly. And so now unable to achieve those military goals, they are basically returning to their massive use of indiscriminate uh, fire when Dvornikov took over command of Russian forces in Syria, um, basically destroying the city and leading to mass displacement. And hopefully in the, in the case of Ukraine, uh, when this war ends, uh, and people will be able to return to their homes and countries will uh, provide resources to allow people uh, to return and not perpetuate basically a situation of uh, kind of permanent displacement and exile that Syrians continue to suffer through. Elizabeth Sirkov is a fellow at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Foreign Policy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's State of Ukraine from NPR News. Think of this as a breaking news live blog for your ear. Catherine Laidlaw edited and Milton Gavada produced this episode. I'm Steve Inskip. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.